Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This is about the second half of the chapter. And John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 will provide us a little bit of context for our sermon. Our sermon this morning comes from Psalm 74. It's our first Lord's Day of the month. So we'll stop our sermon series through Hebrews, and we'll go back and we'll look at this psalm, the psalm of the month, Psalm 74. Before we go there, let's look at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Amen. John tells us that this cleansing of the temple happens during Passover, the festival which celebrated the Exodus. While the people of God were coming together in Jerusalem to think about their deliverance up out of Egypt, He's busy walking into the temple and finding that they're not worshiping the God of the Exodus. They have turned the house of worship into a house of commerce. They have blasphemed the name of God with their business. Overcome with zeal for the house of God, fervent in his anger at this gross indignation, he braids a whip. How many of you are familiar with whip making? Have cut leather, sewn it together? This is not a rash man flying off the handle. This is a patient, hot rage. And when he cleanses the temple, it is thorough. The animals are gone, the people are gone, the money is gone, and the only thing that is left is Jesus and worship. Of course, the leaders of the Jews 
totally missed the object lesson. By what sign do you do this? Justify this. Do you have authority to do this? And Jesus says, yeah. Destroy the temple and in three days I'll bring it back to life. And they go, you're going to rebuild this whole place in three days? It took us 46 years. And he's like, no, no, no. You're missing the point again. This building's about me. This worship service is about me. These sacrifices are about me. When you bring in the money, when you bring in the ambition, when you bring in the selfishness, you miss the whole point of the service, which is to know Christ and to glorify Christ. He is the one to which all this is pointing. And so some of them, seeing this sign, believe in his name. Seeing this transformation go, I get it. He's the one. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 74. Our sermon this morning comes from Psalm 74, our psalm of the month. It is the second of this series of psalms by Asaph. Asaph has written Psalms 73 through 83, and we are on essentially Psalm number 2. Among these psalms of Asaph. Psalm 74, here again the word of the Lord. A contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. The tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. This Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. Now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king. From of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty waters. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You prepared, you have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. 
Remember this. That the enemy has reproached, O Lord. And that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant. For the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise you. Arise, O God, plead your cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Amen and amen. Asaph is deep in thought. When was the last time you were deep in thought? It's over a decade ago now. The book The Shallows was written. Recently, Johann Hari wrote the great work Stolen Focus. We're living in an age where we are increasingly aware of our inability to sit and think. And yet that's exactly what Asaph here is doing. One of my favorite posters as a little boy was on the wall of my childhood doctor's office. I was one of those rare specimen. The doctor who knew me in diapers was the doctor who sent me to college when I turned 18. He was the one doctor, the only doctor I had my entire childhood. And for 18 years, I watched that poster fade in discolor on his wall. In the first panel was a monkey sitting on a chair in Rodin's thinker's pose. And underneath it said, sometimes I sit and think. In the next one, it was a monkey, wild and spastic as you'd expect a monkey to be. And underneath it said, sometimes I cannot. This is the reality that we are often the second monkey and find ourselves unable to be the first. And Asaph hands to us a distracted people, a psalm that makes us slow down, a psalm that makes us think clearly about the world, a psalm that reminds us not everything we see, not everything we feel, not everything we suspect, is the sum total of what is happening. Indeed, God is working salvation in this world. And more often than not, we do not see the salvation of God in our lifetime because we refuse to be still and know He is God. We refuse to be silent and see His salvation. Psalm 46 and Exodus 14. Come, let's sit with Asaph. Let's think with Asaph about how God is working salvation in this world. Notice to begin with, Asaph is thinking about the sufferings of God's people. In verse 1, he says, why have you cast us off forever? Why is your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? In verse 2, he continues this series of intimacy with God. 
the sheep of God's pasture, the congregation whom God has purchased, the tribe of God's inheritance who has been redeemed, the Mount Zion where God has dwelt. Asaph is not thinking about the common struggles that every human, every flesh is heir to, as Shakespeare would put it. Asaph is thinking about those peculiar and specific sorrows that are unique to the people of God. This is not the sin and the sorrow that is familiar to all humanity and all history. No, it is the unique grief and the unique sadness that belongs only to Mount Zion. The people in whom and among whom God dwells, who claim to be Emmanuel. He is my God. We are his people. Those who believe themselves to be the tribe of his inheritance. Who believe they were claimed by God to be the special example of God's love and grace in this world. Those who say that we are his congregation. Purchased by him, brought out of the world and brought together in the knowledge of him and in his friendship. Those who believe they are his sheep. That is, those who eat from his hand, those who live under the shelter of his shepherding care, those who lay down in his green pastures and drink from his still waters. This is the unique sadness and sorrow of those who believe that their identity is the loved of God. Why have you cast us off forever? It is a unique experience of those who believe that they are God's people, that they sometimes go through seasons where they feel they are no longer God's people. They suffer outrageous experiences which seem to communicate clearly that all that they have believed about their relationship with God is a lie. In which God's treatment of them seems to contradict what they believe to be true about themselves. Are we not his sheep? Then why has he led us to slaughter? Are we not his congregation? Then why aren't we gathered? Are we not his tribe of his inheritance? Then why aren't we in the land anymore? Are we not his Mount Zion? Why is he not among us? Anymore, Why have you forsaken us? Right away in the rewording of that question, you guys can hear that this is not unique to Old Testament Israel, is it? Jesus himself would hear at the river Jordan, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in the very next verse of Mark's gospel, and the spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. There is no contradiction between being a beloved child of God and being hungry and thirsty and tempted and afflicted in the wilderness. The call to Christianity isn't a call to an easy life. It isn't a call to a quiet, peaceful solitude. Asaph looks into the world, he sits down and he thinks and he says, you know, there's something dreadfully wrong here. 
Those who believe themselves to be the people of God have the unique pain, the unique agony of experiencing things that make it look like God doesn't love us. Like we're not actually his people. And Jesus himself will struggle with this in the wilderness. Beloved, have you ever been through this? Have you, have you ever wrestled with the dark night of the soul? And walked through those seasons where you said, I don't think I'm a child of God. Have you ever looked at the congregation of the Lord and thought, I'm not sure they are children of God. Have you ever sat in judgment of your own soul or of the saints around you and looked up to God and said, where are you and what are you doing? If you have never experienced anything similar to what I'm describing, you're probably young. Wait. The day will come. The day will come when the clouds will gather and they will hide his smiling face. The day that has come for Asaph, where the clouds have grown thick and dark and obscured the light of God's grace, is perhaps the exile. It certainly seems that way in verses 3 through 8. The first suffering, the first sorrow, the first loss that Asaph reflects on is the loss of worship. He says to God, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. That's a Hebrew idiom for come running. Come quickly, lift up your feet, go quick to the perpetual desolations. The sanctuary, the meeting place has been damaged. The enemies in the midst are roaring. No longer are the songs of Zion being sung. Rather, the enemies' war shouts are heard. They set up their banners for signs. No longer is the table there laden with the showbread. No longer is the altar there with the incense rising and the sacrifices burning. Now it is the banners of an enemy army defiling this house of worship. They are men with axes chopping down the thick trees. They are hacking at the carved wood and the wainscoting along the walls. We have a lovely example right here. They've burst into the building and they are chopping the pews to bits and they are stripping the walls bare with their axes and hammers. And when they have removed all the items and articles of value, they have set the building on fire. They have defiled it to the very ground. They have resolved for a total annihilation of the worship of God that there should be no meeting places in all the land. A complete eradication of the worship of God. Now, this seems rather drastic and when we look back on the historical experience of the exile, we say, yes, I see the drastic nature of this in which all the places of worship in the land of God went dark. And if I were to live through that, if I were to experience the complete cessation of public worship, I too should understand the grief and the sorrow that Asaph had. When he felt cut off from God, he he felt cast out by God because worship came to an end. 
And if that were your attitude, I would ask you, where were you in March and April of 2020? Because I was in that pew back there, weeping my eyes out. Writing poems I dare not show you. And listening to the groans and sighs of this empty building. Wondering how long, Lord, why have you cast us off? Truly, truly we have wandered far from the center of our faith when we find anything more devastating than the loss of public worship. Is this not the equivalent of being cut off from the living God? They took an axe to the root of our tree, the tree of life. I was cut off from the bread in the cup. I was cut off from the reading and the singing and the preaching of the word of God. I was cut off at the stump, says Asaph, says Israel. I had no worship. And so I had no God. So I had no life. My friends, we could apply this to the congregation as I just did. We could apply it to our families and ourselves. Not only do we need sacred space. I don't mean this building. You could find sacred space in any place. But not only do we need sacred space in which to worship God Physically, geographically, we need sacred space in our calendars. A space in the schedule that says this is the hour of worship and no one may transgress it. I am here to be connected with God and to grow up into the life of God. And if I don't have this space in my schedule given to my fellowship and friendship with God, I can't grow. I am cast off and I feel alone in the world. We need space in our heads and in our hearts. We need to stop and to slow down, to sit and to think. So often we allow our world to be crowded and we allow our world to be loud and there's no room to worship God. And Asaph looks at us and says, let's lament. Let's lament the loss of worship. Let's lament the destruction of our meeting places. Let's weep with our brothers and sisters in Selma, whose church building went to the ground when the tornado came through. And let us lament those of us who live like our worship has survived the tornado. And there are but pieces on the ground. The second thing that Asaph is concerned with is that not only has worship come to an end, that space in the calendar, that space on Antrim Street, that space in the hearts and heads of the people of God in which worship happens, has been swallowed up and destroyed. Asaph also laments and calls us to lament the loss of assurance, the loss of earthly comfort. He says in verse 9, We do not see our signs. There is no prophet. No one knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Asaph recognizes that not only has the temple been destroyed, not only has worship been removed from the people of God, but so too have the signs of God's presence. His Spirit's power at work within them to live in an age in which the wind seems not to blow, to live in an age in which there's no stirring in the souls of God's people, 
No awakening passion and fervor for the truths of God. We see no signs to live in an age where there's no repentance of sin. No godly grief for our worldliness. But to make matters worse, we see no signs of the Spirit. We hear no prophet. No one speaks from the pulpit. No one opens the scriptures and says, Thus says the Lord, hear and heed. And thus we do not know how long. We're left in the dark. We're left feeling our way through life going, When does this season end? When does hope come? When does dawn come? Do you know those awful sleepless nights where you wake up every 20 to 30 minutes and you look at the clock and by the third or fourth hour, you're just in agony because that clock's hand won't go around any faster because the time just won't change quickly enough and dawn just won't come and neither will sleep. Asaph looks out and says, we're in this spiritual nightmare. There is no rest, there is no sleep, and there is no promise of dawn. There is no hope. We do not know how long the silence of God's voice in this world leaves us screaming, Father, how long? How long will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? This brings us to this incredible word. In verse 1, why have you cast us off forever? In verse 10, Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Asaph understands that when we are separated from God because worship has gone away, when we are separated from God because we no longer hear His voice in our midst, it feels like an eternity before He speaks again. We say so casually when we look at Israel's history, oh, they had 400 years of silence in Egypt. And it felt like hell. They had 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it felt like hell. And Jesus hung on the cross for three hours and he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. Just silence. And it felt like hell. Have you cast me off forever? Have you allowed the enemy to triumph forever. It is at this point, halfway through the psalm, that Asaph has taken us by the hand and caused us to walk through very slowly that we should lament together the loss of our fellowship with our Heavenly Father. That we should become awake and alert to our desperate desire for worship. And our desperate desire to have God talk to us and maintain fellowship with us. That as we have come into this despair and this longing through our lament, that Asaph at least, at last, finally gives relief. Are you guys ready for the good news? I'm ready for the good news. Verse 12. But my God is king from of old, working salvation on the earth. How's that for a change? The temple's destroyed. God's people are banished from the land. They've gone off into exile. Every earthly semblance of God's goodness and grace is gone. But my king 
is of old. But my God is king. And he works salvation in the earth. He's not done with us. The story doesn't end here. I look back, says Asaph. He gives us two things to do. One is let's look back. The other is let's look around. First, let's look back. He says to God, you work salvation in the midst of the earth. Verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. That is the Red Sea parted under the staff of Moses. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the water. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. This appears to be Pharaoh and his army, who of course drowned in the Red Sea when the waters collapsed back on top of their heads. You gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. That is to say that the people of Israel, as they went out into the wilderness, plundered the Egyptians. They were enriched by the Egyptians as they went out. You broke open the fountain in the flood. He brought food from the heavens, the quail and the manna. He brought water from the rock. You dried up the mighty rivers. That is to say that Jordan was separated, that Israel might go safe into the land of Canaan. He looks back to the Exodus and Asaph says, death is not the end. Exile is not the end. The complete destruction of the temple is not the end. We are going through a season of sorrow and sadness in which it seems we are no longer the beloved people of God, but objects of his wrath. But this is not the end. I look back and I remember you work salvation in this world. Of course, the Exodus and the work of Moses are all types and shadows of the work of Jesus Christ. And so we can go through these verses again. You divided the sea by your strength and broke the heads of the sea serpents and Leviathan. There is only one other person in all of Scripture who is compared to a sea serpent or a Leviathan. His name is Satan. And his head was crushed under the heel of Christ. He broke his head in pieces. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, living here in this wilderness, this exile from our Heavenly Father, feast on the carcass of the kingdom of Satan. That is to say, we triumph over the powers of darkness. We celebrate the freedom of those who were once enslaved to sin and Satan and now walk in the light of the kingdom of heaven. We understand our God works salvation in Christ. We look back to the cross of Christ and we see hope and we see salvation. He broke open the fountain and the flood. Who does Jesus say is the bread from heaven? Himself. And who is the rock from which the water came according to 1 Corinthians 10? It is Christ. He is the one who carries us safely through death into the land of promise. Beloved, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is worked among us. Verse 12, when it says that God the King works salvation in the midst of the earth, that word salvation is the word Jesus. Yeshua. He works Jesus into the world. 
He works Jesus into your history. He works Jesus into your life, into your awareness. When we go through these seasons of sorrow and suffering and we go, where is God? The answer is in Christ, where he has always been. And we look back to the cross and say, there is my God, hanging there, bloodied and beaten for me and my transgression. When we are in a situation without hope, we look to Christ on the cross and find hope. We look back. But secondly, let us look around. In verses 16 and 17, Asaph says, The day is yours, the night is yours. You prepared the light and the sun, set the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Asaph here is calling to mind Genesis 1 and the God, the Creator, who has day and night sorted for him. You guys are memorizing Genesis 1 with the Sabbath school class, right? All the little ones. He called light day and the darkness he called night. I got at least one guy listening to me right now. And he separated the day from the night. This is what Asaph is thinking about. There is an order to the world. There is a rhythm to the world. There is a rightness to the world. That the light, the sun, the moon, the stars on day four were put in that space, the heavens, to give light on the earth. He set the borders of the earth. He said, the sea shall go this far and no farther. From this experience of creation, when we see the sun rise, when we see the moon rise, when we see the stars come out, when we see the sea come to the shore, but no farther... In each of these examples, Asaph says we nourish our souls with the promise and the hope that God is in control. That God has ordered it according to His wisdom. And we nourish ourselves with this hope. Even the sea comes to an end. Can you imagine being an ancient Israelite and sitting on a little rowboat and trying to cross the ocean? You would think the thing never ends. And then you see land. We too pass through life, rowing with all our might against the wind and the waves of all the pain and sin and suffering. And we think it'll never end. And then we see land. And God brings us to the end. This too is found in the final line of verse 17. You have made summer and winter. This is not from Genesis 1. There are no seasons in Genesis 1. There are days and nights, and there is one week. Seasons come from Noah, Genesis 9. After the flood, God promises that just as predictably as day and night will come, so will come seed time and harvest. There will be a season in your life when you will throw seeds into the ground, and it will be go, 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 so, so, so. And there will be seasons of your life when you just sit there and watch and you just sit there and wait. And there will be seasons of your life when you harvest and you gather and there's singing and there's dancing and there's laughter as the abundance comes in. And then there will be winter when you will be cold and lonely in a dark and hard world. These are the ways God runs His world. It is but a season. 
this too shall pass. Beloved, this is what our God shows to us through the prophet Asaph. That he is working salvation in this world. It is only now, having taken us through the long lament in which we have faced truly the agony of this life, into the great hope that God is in this world in His Son Jesus Christ, and God is at work in this world, that we could step into creation, that we could step into history, and we could see the objective reality that we miss in our earthly experience. God's here and He's at work. And He's working salvation. It is only then that Asaph then hands us our prayer. It is only then that we are positioned, postured, and ready to pray the way we're supposed to pray. Verse 18, here's his great prayer. His one petition, his one request, this whole psalm, Asaph meditates on the agony, meditates on the grace and the glory, and makes one request. Remember this. That's it. God, remember this. Of course, the word remember in Hebrew doesn't mean sit and think. That's what Asaph's been doing. Remember in Hebrew means get up and act. God, I know you work salvation in the earth. I know you work salvation in the world. Work salvation in me. I know you work salvation in the earth. I know you work salvation in the world. Work salvation in my family. In my job. In my city. Remember this. And Asaph has two parts to his this. First, that the enemy, the foolish people, that is the God-denying atheists, blaspheme your name. Verse 23, their voice rises continually. As they reproach, verse 22, God can, as they reproach him daily. Asaph attends to the real issue. Of all the problems in his life, of all the pain in his life, the greatest one isn't his loss of job. It isn't the loss of his temple. It isn't the loss of his ancestral farm. It isn't the loss of his land. It isn't his loss of his identity. It's his loss of God's glory. God, somebody's blaspheming your name. God, somebody's not worshiping you. God, somebody's not enjoying you and delighting you as you ought to be. Remember this. Remember how the world isn't glorifying and enjoying you. See this. Act on this. Reveal yourself to them and bring them to that repentance. But secondly, deliver the life of your turtle dove from the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor. Have respect to the covenant. Let the oppressed return. Do not let the oppressed return ashamed, but let the poor and needy praise your name. Asaph prays for the turtle dove. The poor, the oppressed, the needy. These words sum up together the reality. We are the powerless. We are the defenseless. We are the ones at the mercy of the sufferings of this world. That's why the whole first half of the psalm is lament. It trains us 
to acknowledge and accept our inability. Do you know what is so remarkable about a turtle dove? It was the lowest animal on that social structure of sacrificial animals. You could sacrifice an ox who is big and strong. You could sacrifice goats and rams and all these other animals. Or if you were really poor and needy, you could sacrifice a turtle dove. You know why a turtle dove? Because they're slow moving and dull witted. And even the poor could capture one and bring it as a sacrifice. God have mercy on us. We are slow moving and dull witted. God have mercy on us. We are poor and needy. We are powerless to take care of ourselves. Powerless to take care of our children. Powerless to set our world right. It is when we come to this very bottom, when we come to this very desperation, that we are prepared for verse 22. Arise, O God, plead your cause. God, rise up and be judge. Rise up and set the world right. Rise up and show us resurrection and eternal life. Rise up from the dead. For when we see Christ on the cross, we see Satan defeated. And when we see Christ in the grave, we see sin and death destroyed. And when we pray together from our own graves, from our own seas of sorrow and sin, rise up, O God, we see the resurrection and the ascension and the triumph of Christ who leads us victorious, even amidst the continual cries against us. Lowly little church, lonely little saint, life is hard. Asaph does not hide that. But your God works salvation. Ask Him to do it in your life. God works salvation in this world. Ask Him to act in your life. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful psalm. We give you thanks for the strength of Asaph's passions. We give you thanks for the wisdom of his words. We give you thanks for the bending of our wills. That we, through the teaching of Asaph, should pray like Jesus, not our will, but your will be done. And we give you thanks that in your scriptures we have learned that it is your will that we should be saved. That you should work salvation among us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see this truth in our lives. And to pray believingly that you will work salvation in us and among us. Father, plant this prayer in our hearts and in our lips this month. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.